Good morning, Four Oaks. How are you this morning? It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. And it is my joy once again to come and open God's word for us here in this place. So I hope you're already having a good holiday weekend. Um, some of you will probably have plans, things that you're, uh, you're doing to celebrate the, the weekend. Maybe you have a, a little time off. Maybe it's time to pull out the grill. Maybe it's time to invite some friends over or just kind of hang out at the beach or the pool. But I think the greatest tradition of this holiday has got to be involving anything with pyrotechnics. Okay? I mean, isn't it just man's basic desire to play with fire? So I heard about this... Um, this story uh, recently in San Diego where they put together this, you know, one of those massive fireworks productions uh, in, in the Bay. And the thing about that that was so memorable about this particular fireworks show was that it was so brief. After a small little computer glitch, it set the whole 18-minute show off all at once in about 15 to 20 seconds. I mean, it was the grand finale and the whole show all together. Everything went up. Um, you, you can imagine that people probably started to, to you know, cheer, and then they probably started to, to get a little afraid there for, for a moment, right? So I don't know what you're doing. Um, this is my pastoral encouragement to be safe out there. Um, but we do things to celebrate uh, things like the birth of our nation. Well, this, this morning... Um, we're going to continue on in our series called The Story of Israel. And we're looking back at the story of Exodus. And so here we see um, really what, what can be known as um, the, the, the birth or the liberation event of the nation of, of Israel. So we're looking back at that. So you can grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 14. And what we'll see is we'll see one of the most memorable, most quoted, most recognized, and probably miraculous stories in the Old Testament. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. And we'll see that uh, Israel celebrated in their own way, but with a song. So open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 14, and let's look together at this uh, amazing story. So it's a little bit of a long read, so I'm going to uh, let you stay seated for this one. But I'm, I want to read the, the whole passage, chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi hi between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall, shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers, all, all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and, and they, they overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-hai-haroth in front of Baal-zephon. 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said, Mos- they, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that, they shall not, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. When Moses stretched, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, and upon the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen. All the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared, feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray. God, we're so amazed at your hand of salvation at work. We 
have to be honest, as we come to this text, we hear how miraculous it is, and we think, could this be something that I can even relate to? And yet, open our eyes, the eyes of faith, to see, yes, you are the God who works, you are the God who sees us where we are at, and you are the God who saves. Just as miraculous as here in the Old Testament, you are the God, you are the same God who still saves. So it's in your name that we pray, and it's your word that we hold high. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as I said, we're in a series called The Story of Israel this summer. And we're kind of going behind the scenes, getting a little bit of a backstory uh, of God's work with the Jews as we look towards jumping back into Romans 11 in in the fall. Um, And so Romans 11 starts with this question. This is where we're, where we're leading to. It says, have the promises of God to his people failed because of the Jews' stubborn rejection? So we want to go back and, and look and get some snapshots just how God is unfolding his plan with his people. And my hope is that this morning, even though this may be a familiar passage to many of us, um, that this would not hinder us this morning, but that it would be something that humbles us by the glory of God, that we would be attentive to uh, the salvation of God and we would be filled with faith because of his faithfulness. So last week, Pastor Paul showed uh, from uh, the story of Abraham, he showed us that God initiated a relationship with Abraham. And even in the, the wake of all of Adam's chaos and his family tree, God makes a promise that Abraham never saw completely fulfilled. And the promise goes like this. It says, you remember, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless you and all the nations through you. He had promised his descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. So where are we now with all this? Okay, how are we doing with with this promise? Well, if we look from Abraham to Exodus, where we're going to end up today, we see Abraham, who was an old man who was promised to have many descendants, Yet his wife and him could not have children. But they had a son named Isaac. But then God told them to sacrifice their son. But then God provided uh, a way for uh, him to be saved. And Isaac had Jacob. But he turned out to be a liar and a blessing stealer. And then Jacob had sons. And one of his sons was, uh, Jace, was uh, Joseph and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day son. Uh, where he was sold into slavery into Egypt, and then God used him uh, to save the nation. So things might be looking up a little bit here, but then the only problem is now they're not in the land, and after Joseph dies, there's a new pharaoh that comes that doesn't know Joseph and enslaves the people, and here we are 400 years later. They probably thought, Man, what happened to all the promises? They probably thought, who's driving this bus? Because I want to I get off. Has God forgotten his promise? And as we come to the book of Exodus and the silence of, of the darkness, the book of Exodus actually begins with a glimmer of hope that God is still working. Exodus chapter 1, we'll put it on the screen, and verse 7 says this. Listen to this. Or at the beginning of Exodus. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong 
so that the land was filled with them. See, at the beginning of, of Exodus, they came into the land as 70 people, and now they've multiplied so much that the estimate is probably around 2 million people. God was still working. God was doing things behind the scenes. So even in the midst of their slavery, God did not pause or lose track of his plan. He was still working. I mean, there's so much that we could say about this chapter. We could go on and on. There's so many good things here. But there are three words that I just kind of want to point out from the text uh, that helped Israel and hopefully will help us to experience God's uh, amazing hand of deliverance up close and personal. And so the, the three things, the three ideas are this. Number one, know. Number two, see. And number three, believe. Know, see, believe. And I want us to understand this. The God who makes himself known through his mighty saving hand will fulfill his gracious promise for his treasured people. Let me say it one more time. The God who makes himself known through his mighty saving hand will fulfill his gracious promise for his treasured people. But how will God do this? So number one, no. God makes himself known. And at the beginning of chapter 14, we see that God uh, gives Moses kind of the flyover of the plan. He tells him everything that's, that's going to happen, and it happens just as God said. God is the God who will make himself known. And in verse 4 of chapter 14, he says this. He says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So first, God is the one who always initiates. That's his pattern. It's even why we start our services with a call to worship. God calls us into relationship with him. And God first makes himself known. He did it with Abraham, and he does it with Moses and Pharaoh and Israel, and he'll do it with the whole world. There's a promise in Habakkuk 2 that says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So here in Exodus 14, right away we see that God makes his intentions clear. He will be known and he will get glory. But in order to understand this, I think we need to understand who the hero is in the story. Make no mistake that Moses and his might or you know, supposed savvy leadership, baby, for a moment, was not what gets glory. It's not what gets glory over the great Pharaoh. It is God alone. And God is not like showing his, his cosmic insecurities by, you know, wanting the limelight here. I think he's simply stating what is true. He is God alone. He is the creator and the sustainer of life, and he is glorious, and he deserves all the glory. And there's two ways that God, God will be known. So you will either know God God's glory in his righteous judgment or his gracious salvation. And the truth is that because of Adam and our sin, every one of us already deserves God's judgment, don't we? This is the difference between knowing God factually and knowing him relationally. However, God makes himself known to both Egypt and Israel. If we look back um, at chapter 5 and verse 2, let me uh, kind of bring it up to speed. So 
You remember the story. Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh with their great message. You can almost hear Charlton Heston's voice. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Immediately, we begin to see a little bit of Pharaoh's hardened heart. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Basically, who is this Yahweh? Who is this I am that I am that I should be serving him? Because remember, Pharaoh was really considered to be a god himself. So he was surely not going to allow someone else to be god over him and to see someone that he should obey. But when we set ourselves or when anything sets themselves up in the place that only God deserves, it's not going to go well. You see, God is the only one who deserves the glory. This was, this was the problem in the garden, wasn't it? I mean, you can hear it when Satan tempts Adam and Eve with some of the same type of lines. Maybe something like, like this. You can be as wise as God if you eat this. Who is the Lord that you should obey his word? Don't we hear echoes of that even in our own lives? So do you see that this is a very serious thing? It's not that a God is kind of a glory hog. He actually is God, and he does have a rescue plan. And listen, God's ultimate aim for his people is that they, he would be their God and that they would be his people, all satisfied, ever finding peace and protection and perfection in his plan. So if we only know him factually, we don't really know him at all, do we? When the Egyptians get all the facts, it's too late. You know the story. God miraculously opens the waters and the people cross on dry ground. The, the Egyptians follow after them and it starts to get a little muddy. They think they can cross too. The waters start receding. And then what happens? They panic because they, they trust in chariots and a man for their victory. But then they cry out. They cry out with this really profound truth, and we see it in verse 25. It says this, the Lord fights for them. Verse 25 says, after their chariots' wheels were clogged, it says, and the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They knew who God was. It was the Lord, Yahweh, and, he, and they knew God was fighting for his people. So this is the glory of God revealed in his righteous judgment. But out of that, listen, God was making a people. God was making himself known to his people. So God is a righteous judge. Yes, that's true. But he is also a gracious savior. Maybe you think, man, this is kind of seems heavy. God doesn't really seem to be gracious, and I'm kind of having a hard time to see, even seeing God's gracious character in my life right now. Believer, let me remind us, God is gracious. He's the one who reached down and brought them out. Though they deserved all the judgment that the Egyptians got, they, that judgment was also uh, for them if they did not turn to God. And so they, um, 
So we, sometimes we live as those who are setting our own selves up as God. Or sometimes we, we kind of live as though we just take whatever fruit that we see fit. Yet God graciously makes himself known by bringing his people out so that they might know who he is. They might serve him, that they might live together with him. You see, he's restoring the relationship that was supposed to be in the garden. What about relationally? So now we watch the grace of God at work as God makes himself known to Moses. So again, going back to uh, the earlier parts of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, let me just highlight a couple of verses here to, to remind us. When God called out to Moses, it says, God called out to him out of the burning bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And in verse 6, he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, because he knew who this was. And in verse 12, he says this, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall what? You shall serve God on this mountain. When Moses is running away from all of his failures, all of his failures in Egypt, it's God who calls out to him, isn't it? And it's God who makes himself known in a gracious way. It's all over the book. He calls him by name. He says, it's me, your God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember those promises. And he assures him that he will be with him. He assures him that he's heard the cries, he's heard their suffering, and he's finally calling out to them so that they could live in harmony with him. I remember when Moses asks this, he says, uh, but who should I say sent me? What is his name? And God answers, I am that I am. I'm the God who not only promises, but I'm the God who was and is and forever will be. Powerful enough to bring about your salvation and the promises that I made to you. So this morning, church, just hear the comfort in that. Does that bring you comfort to know that God is God and he has made himself known to those of us who are his people? And he knows you by name. And he he hears your infant cries. He knows your sufferings, your anxieties, your, secure, your insecurities, the things that you are dealing with today. And he is able to keep those promises to you. It's amazing. So now back at the Red Sea, we look at uh, verses 17 and 18, and God tells Moses exactly what he's going to do next. He says this in verse 17 and 18, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then to emphasize it, Scripture says, says in verses 24 and 25, it's exactly what happened. And in the morning watch, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, 
looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. And they cried out, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. That day, God made himself known, and he was unmatched in his glory. He was the only God. And the reality is that neither the Egyptians nor the Israelites deserve any relationship with God, right? As we said, God graciously reached down and he drew them from the water just like he did Moses when he was a baby. And that's exactly what he's done for you and I. So this morning, church, let's just be amazed at the glory of God in our salvation. But knowing God is not a fact-based event like we said. It's a relationship. It's, it's less like, like a seminar, more like a story. I think that's precisely why God not only makes himself known, but he invites us to see his mighty acts of salvation at work. So number two, see. See the God who saves. Remember Pharaoh uh, had finally released Israel from their slavery and from the plagues, and they were actually free. And after all they had seen, they must have felt like nothing could stop them now. Remember what the scripture says, that they came out defiantly. In verse 8, it says, the people of Israel were going out defiantly. They were sure this was the turning point. I mean, cue eye of the tiger. This is where the turning point is, right? Well, not quite yet. Because if you see the beginning of the story, they're, they're heading towards the promised land, and then God says, no, I want you to turn back and go south instead of take what would really be the easiest way, which would be up the coast and towards the promised land. So it's like, God, what are you doing? Wouldn't the fastest way be to go that way? But we're going this way. And as soon as Pharaoh got wind of that, he said, man, these, these uh, Israelites, they're just wandering. They're slaves that are just wandering. So let's go get them. So they head in their chariots, and they start to, to go after the uh, Israelites who had already been freed from the land of Egypt. And look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they what? They feared greatly. It's like what their hearts, what their eyes saw, their hearts sank because of. They couldn't believe their eyes, their old slave masters, were coming back after them again. They were paralyzed because they couldn't see that God was with them. And so they responded in fear. Israel's response to their circumstances was based on what they see. They were looking in the wrong direction. They had their eyes on the chariots. But remember what happens. Remember there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, and it's supposed to lead them as God's people and to guide them. But what does it do? It says it goes behind them. Could you imagine being the Israelites like, well, where are we? Like we're going backwards again? Like, this way, then, then this way, towards the, the Egyptians. But God was not guiding them that way. He was protecting them and shielding them. And even as he passes through 
the waters, as Israel passes through the waters, what does it say multiple times? It was on the left hand and the right hand. The walls of water. Don't you get the picture? God is with them as his people. I will be with you before, behind, on my left, on my right. God was reminding them that he was surely with them through the waters. He is our guide and guarantee. And the Holy Spirit for us today is our guide and guarantee that we will make it through the waters. Praise God for his spirit at work in us. But before we kind of get too uh, hard on the Israelites, let's consider our, our, our own hearts and how we respond to those who um, have experienced the salvation of God from sin's house of slavery when they see their slave masters coming at them again. We respond in one of two ways, either faith or fear. Israel could see this massive army coming after them, wanting to drag them back into bondage. Isn't that just how our, our sin works too? We see our sin and the brokenness of our past. And don't they pursue us in the same way, relentlessly, even into the, the water? And we, like Israel, begin to fear. And what happens when we fear? We cry out with, with irrational cries. You see, God heard their cries um, to be saved, but now these are cries that are irrational. It's like they don't even make sense anymore. And this is exactly how Israel responds to the army. They say things like this. They're like, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you took us out here to die? That's ridiculous. How many documentaries I've watched about the pharaohs and the tombs and all the graves that are in Egypt? Or they might say, what have you done to us who told you this was going to happen? That wasn't true either. But we like to say, I told you so, don't we? Or maybe they said, it was better for us to serve Egypt than to die in the wilderness. They even sensationalized their miserable circumstances. They convinced themselves that it was better to serve the old slave masters than to serve God. They were completely irrational cries. But don't we do the same thing? Maybe we cry out, in situations when our eyes are on these, our old slave masters, we cry out with these things. And maybe we say, God, I don't, I don't think you know what you're doing. I'd be, I'd be better off in my sin than following you. Or maybe our heart would say, you put me in this job, but now I'm miserable. This is your fault. Or maybe as a student, it's too difficult to follow you in this culture I'm not going to make it. How about in our marriages? Marriage is not, this marriage is not making me happy. This is your mistake, and it's just not worth it. Or how about this? No one is there for me. I'm alone. You've abandoned me. And so now I just, I deserve to give in to my temptation. When we see our circumstances with eyes of fear, we fall back into the mindset of slavery, don't we? So easily. But Moses had a word for the children of Israel to help them with their blinded, slavish eyes and to bring them back and restore their sight. Listen to verse 13. It says this. 
And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Just see. Just see God's saving hand at work. Eyes of fear will tempt you towards a salvation of works instead of a salvation by grace sometimes. Think about it. Maybe we're afraid because there are two basic responses. Either fight or flight, right? Fight, we want to run towards it and take care of it. Flight, we want to run away and, and just get rid of it. Sometimes we can act like that when our eyes are fixed on fear and we're tempted to bypass God's grace. I just need to figure out what to do. God, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to run away. Or, no, I, just, I need to go, I need to fight this on my own. I need to take care of it. I need to find a way. But that's bypassing God's grace. And we act like if we could just maybe muster up enough faith, we could figure it out. But our our faith isn't dependent upon our ability to produce it, is it? God's saving work is effective because it was God who did the saving, not our upstanding faith. And I love this quote by Tim Keller. It says this, I'm going to read it. The individual Israelites had different qualities of faith, but they were all equally saved. They were equally delivered. Why? Because you're not saved by the quality of your faith. You are saved because of the object of your faith, the Redeemer, the God who is fighting for you. Everything about this text says grace, 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 grace. Crossing over is by grace. So stand firm. Stand still. Charles Spurgeon calls this a believing silence. I love that. So this was God's promise. I will be with you. I will bring you out. I will multiply you. I will bring you into the land that I promised. The great I am that I am is powerful enough to bring you all the way out. So church, see his grace at work in your life. And listen to verse 13. The Egyptians that you see today, you will what? You will never see again. The Lord has placed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Just be silent. Stand in a believing silence and let God fight your old slave masters. You are free. Kind of gets personal for us here, doesn't it? Our sin, our tribulation, our circumstances, though we may look, it may look to us like an Egyptian army is coming after us to enslave us, they have no power over us. Just see God's saving hand and Believe him this morning. But then look at verse 15. Now what's the next thing that happens to Israel here as they stand in silence? God says to Moses to tell the people what? Go forward. What? He just told us to stand. That was a great speech. Stand firm. I was like I was feeling it. And now you're telling us go forward. <laughs> Looks like God's driving the bus again. When God makes himself known to his people, though, and he causes us to see and he causes us to stand firm in his salvation with 
eyes of faith, not eyes of fear, knowing that his presence is guiding us, we can move forward in God's perfect timing, believing his word. I can hear it in the psalmist's voice. Listen to Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel, counsel you with my eye upon you. Now watch what happens when uh, Israel's eyes come away from their army and they see the gracious hand of God at work and his outstretched arm. In verse 30 and 31, at the very end of the chapter, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, a godly fear because of what they saw. So know, see, number three, lastly, believe. The end of verse 31, the last line says this, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. At this point, we kind of want to be careful to understand the whole picture of what God is doing here when he's leading his people. The Red Sea was a great moment and everything, but let's remember where God is leading his people. He's bringing them out of Egypt for a purpose, and that purpose was that they would be in relationship with him, that they would enjoy worshiping him as his people. I will be your God, and, and you will be my people. He's leading them to Sinai, and this is the place where he's going to give them the law. His desire is that they would know him in order to live in relationship with him as God. And one commentator made a really uh, good point, I thought. He said this, he said that it's important to notice the order here. God didn't just give them the law, and then once they obeyed it, then he saved them. He called them out, he delivered them, and then he gave them the law to help his people understand how they were to relate to him in all of life worship. You see, God's promised covenant to them through Abraham and their salvation from Egypt was prior to his instructions on how to live in his presence. God initiates, God saves, and God brings us near. So let's fast forward as we end the message here from Egypt to Sinai and pick it up real quick in Exodus 19. I'll put it on the screen where Moses goes up to the mountain and there's a description there of the nation of Israel here. I'll read it. It says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him on the mountain, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See what he calls them? A holy nation. It's, it's almost a joke if you read through the Old Testament. It's like 
these people are so far from a holy nation. They look so much like all the other people, and yet God is making them his treasured possessions? Seems impossible. Well, remember how the story ends at the Red Sea. It says at verse 31 that they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses, right? They believed in the Lord, but they also needed a mediator. And Israel looked to Moses as their mediator to tell them God's word and to stretch out his hand to part the waters. God worked his salvation of the nation through his mediator, Moses. Now, here's the bad news and the good news. The bad news is that in many ways, uh, though Moses was faithful, he still messed up and he still sinned, right? In fact, his grave is at the edge of the promised land because he didn't um, obey the word of God. But here's the good news. God has not failed. All that Israel uh, and their mediator Moses failed to do, there was a better mediator on the way. So we fast forward a little bit more to the New Testament, and we see our description as believers today. So let's see where we fit in. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the amazing description that Peter gives of those who have been saved by the gospel of grace? This would just be an empty promise if it weren't for a perfect mediator. One who not only reveals God's word to us, but is also able to fulfill all the demands that a holy God would need to create a holy nation, prized and treasured people to live with him. Hebrews 3 says this. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We look to Jesus, our mediator, who is both God and man, perfect and powerful enough to fulfill all of God's promises. Amen? So our big idea was this. God, the God who makes himself known through his mighty saving hand will fulfill his gracious promise for his treasured people. So God's promises have not failed. Now, in Jesus, all of his promises are yes and amen. And God brings them through the Red Sea at the end of chapter 14. But in chapter 15, they sing what's called the Song of Moses. And one line from that is, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. But listen to this. One day, God's people will sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, our mediator. 
and we will enjoy his presence forever. Our Savior. Revelation 15 says this, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray.